Hello everyone, it's Wednesday, March the 20th, and welcome to Pi Cubed, the podcast about science, technology, and anything else we find interesting. Joining me today, as usual, is Salman Siddiqui. Hi Salman, how are you doing? Hey, how are you doing? I forgot to say, I'm, I'm your host. I'm your host, Francesco Buciello. As usual. Joining, as usual. <laughs> and joining me today is Salman Siddiqui. So, hey Salman, what's up? Yeah, I'm good, I'm good. Uh, anything interesting happened to you over this week? Uh, no, just, just feeling a bit... And the weather, just, uh, I guess the flu is coming, I don't know. Uh, there's a new Pope now. There is a new Pope. And he's got your name. He's got my name, that's true, that's wonderful. Let's move on <laughs> <laughs> to our first topic, which is iron fish. Now, How much is iron fish? Is it one pound? <laughs> one pound for an iron fish. Uh, <laughs> no, let, uh, let's be serious, this is, this is a serious podcast. Okay, kind what of. is this iron fish all about? It's a fish made of iron. Yeah, moving on. No, it's uh, and is that a real fish? It's not a real fish. So um, this is quite interesting article that you found. It's uh, from last year, yep. which talks about this um, this graduate from Guelph University, I Guelph, think it is yeah. in Canada. Okay. Uh, that he went on this placement. Uh, I can't remember where was it. Cambodia. Cambodia. Yeah, Cambodia. he went to a CM Reap. Uh, hmm? He went to CM Reap. In, okay, I mean Cambodia, in Cambodia, which is a pretty poor area of the world, and um, and I can. Uh, from 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 first hand accounts i can i can testify you've been there yeah how how poor the area is and and um uh there are areas there where where people have have literally no no civic amenities and um uh and uh, there's there's the main river which um, goes through Cambodia, which I cannot remember th- uh, the name of at the moment. But it's um, uh, but but what it's uh, famous for is that at some point in the year, the course of the river changes and it and it leads um, for the whole uh, river valley to flood, which okay. means that the houses there they're all built on on stilts. Okay. So a bit, a bit like Bangladesh when you get constant flooding. Kind of like that, yeah. But in this valley, the houses. So, so, okay, so so they're all um, built. Is it the Mekong River? Yes, that's it. Right. So they're all built on stilts, and um, and then yeah, once it floods, I was there obviously when it didn't, when when the water levels were down, but yeah, once it floods, um, the only way to our get around town is through these small. Uh, canoes that they make are like homemade canoes and um, and it's kind of uh, sad to see like some of uh, they use the river for everything Um, uh, they come out they use it for cleaning for washing for other human functions as well waste yeah waste and stuff but yeah they they have no running water other than this river which looked filthy when i was there yeah. and they've also got uh our crocodiles there as well so yay it's uh, a tough think, situation to live in yeah i think people lived on less than less than one dollar a month or something like uh, that I think that uh, most people get it wrong uh, when talking about living on less than a dollar a day. It's not living less than a dollar a day. It's living less than a dollar equivalent yeah, a day. Yeah, okay. Which is a big difference. Because it's not... You know, if you had a dollar in Cambodia, I'm sure it would be... Not, it wouldn't be nice, but it would be reasonably well. Well, just to give you an example, um, the place where I was staying, it cost me $2 a night to stay um in this room and and this and this included um uh surprisingly electricity but no air, air conditioning um of, of course because that's because that's like um like an extra luxury which just doesn't exist there well i'm sure it just just the, the power grid is not yeah what well, it can't be able to support it. it yeah and um they had very very basic internet uh, facilities there it was like it, it just wasn't it was just they were good enough to I would check your email and yeah. and that's about it See, that should, I, I've lived in Tanzania for a while and it actually sounds kind of worse because I, I remember that um, I could access Facebook in the, mil, in the middle of the Serengeti 
they had 3G connections in the, you have in the middle of nowhere. But you have to remember, this is a country that just had um, a genocide. Yeah, that's true. Not ago, so long back, yeah. And, um, so, yeah. So let's go back to the iron fish and why is this important? Okay. Um, this is a country where, where okay, health isn't isn't uh, um, a very good uh, standards anyway they've got high levels of uh, of a dengue fever and uh, malaria as well because uh, they have well they get flooding so obviously get mosquitoes they have a lot of mosquitoes there and the whole time I was so conscious of 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 that yeah, that I, I was wearing did you have did you have uh, tetraflies there as well or not I don't know but um I went without having any any uh any like anti-malarial um, anti tablets or, or anything beforehand so I constantly had full sleeve shirts and stuff yeah, because slag yourself with uh, uh, with you know anti-mosquito anti-mosquito cream yeah yeah sleep, uh, sleep obviously under under, under nets as well nets yeah important as well. Uh, I mean the whole time I, I, I was so conscious of it but anyway they also have low levels of uh, of anemia well, they have high sorry, levels of anemia. Sorry, high levels of anemia, which Caused. means that the people well, they because have, they have low iron. Yeah, low iron levels because in, they, um, especially between the, the poorest people, according to this article, yeah, they don't, uh, they lack meat and um, well, they don't eat red meat because yeah. it's expensive, and uh, they don't use iron cook cook cooking utensils like iron pots, which could normally, increase the amount yeah. of iron. So and they, they don't have money for iron pills, like supp supp supplements. That stuff's expensive. Yeah. Well, I'm sure some of them might be able to get them, but poor people obviously can't. And so there's this guy who went there on a placement, and he turned his PhD or is it masters? Well, it was a masters, <clears> but it's he changed it, his project. I mean, it's to had this. enough to uh, to form the basis of his uh, PhD as well. Yeah, and basically, they, what they were trying to do was trying to convince the local women uh, to cook with lumps of iron in their pots, right? Because if you cook with iron, you get iron released into the into the food but of course they, they wouldn't. wouldn't yeah it's really hard to convince so they tried giving them a lump of iron didn't work then tried giving them a lotus flower made of iron it still didn't work know. and then one day they had the brilliant brilliant idea of making iron fishes and in the shape of a fish which is considered by the local population to be lucky yes <laughs> and so people actually started using it and the rates of anemia went down by quite a bit which because anemia is, is a pretty it's pretty bad uh thing to have I mean uh, low iron in your blood well, can it, leave you uh, or breathless and, well, um, it's just, it, and it, it like uh, makes you have less energy child mortality yeah. goes up if, if your mother has anemia yeah uh, I mean the, the big the big uh, usefulness of iron in our body is uh, is in hemoglobin which is uh, the protein which is crucial to uh, transfer oxygen from from your lungs to your blood screen, bloodstream so obviously less oxygen is not good for you uh, of course yeah have you got this uh, this guy's name but uh, I, I can handy. I can find it uh, his name is Chris Charles let's give him some credit for yeah he he deserves a lot of credit to be honest uh, but it's but it's quite surprising uh, to me that that you can just get enough iron in in your food content just by putting iron yeah, just to put directly level, into level your iron, food. Yeah, yeah. Food. Um, like, like just a few years back, I used to have low iron levels myself, and and the doctor said unless I start eating more more red meat, um, I, I would have to start taking iron pills and stuff. Man. Yeah, but um, but I mean, they never said just put some iron blocks into your into your cooking and you'll get enough iron. Like, isn't yeah, there I, any side effects or? I I, I don't know. Uh, I'm sure it's not the preferred way to get iron, but if if it if rates of of anemia go down, then you know obviously they think it's safe, or at least safer than having anemia. Safe enough, yeah. And it's quite interesting, you know. There's a, there's all these. Um, I wonder, like, what iron craving is like, right? Because there are many many substances that uh, your body needs that you cannot make yourself. Uh, you know, like uh, salt uh, or zinc and all those metals, uh, and so pe people who have, uh, especially it used to be true with, with the poor people um, in the past, when 
it's like eating dirt. Like your, your reflex when you have low, I think it was low zinc or some other metals, you start eating the earth. Like, you know, you go outside and start eating the earth because that's how you get those minerals, really? right? Yeah, it's, it's like a survival instinct that you just you know, start eating. <laughs> okay. And, uh, you know, and, and the same with salt. The reason we like salt so much is that if, without, if you don't eat any salt, like if you have a salt-free diet, that's very dangerous because there are many, many important functions that salt is fundamental. Salt's been... Oh quite our demonized over the last few years since the, the 60s it's uh, yeah i mean like you just hear salt associated with like everything yeah bad diet and stuff salt and perhaps uh cholesterol as well but that's another subject, another so. subject. we'll talk about it another day uh but salt <clears throat> yeah i mean if you're a if you're a sports person uh, you need salt okay like, yeah. like uh, gatorade right it's not just a, a marketing thing it, it was developed at university because the athletes worked better, their muscles worked better if they had more electrolytes. It's not just yeah. some mumbo-jumbo like antioxidants, which we're not going to get into today, but one day <laughs> we will. Uh, so yeah, salt is important. And there's actually, there's been some research lately that has been pointing in the opposite direction, that in fact, people with low salt diets are at a higher risk of heart attack. Uh, I don't want to say too much before looking up these studies and the sources, but... I think maybe one of these podcasts we're going to talk about them, do a yeah, bit more research. I think that's a it. good idea. Uh, we don't want to say anything too controversial without having any proof. Uh, but, it, I mean, it, the problem with like, many studies, uh, especially the ones reported by the media, uh, the ones which are sensational, sensationalistic? Sensational? Sensationalist. Sensationalist. Uh, you know, the you're not going to get any, any people to read your article if it's something boring. Like, you know, they... Scientists prove that what we thought was correct. It's more like scientists prove that carrots do something amazing to your cancer. Well, you, you always get the ones that chocolate is it's good for you. Chocolate's good, good for you. you. Like, Eat more chocolate. Oh, well, of course, like some of the chemicals in it will be good for you. But, but uh, if you eat uh, five kilos a day, then you're gonna have other <laughs> other problems, yeah. uh, like dysentery, for example. Uh, so yeah, so we we should look more into into the stuff and maybe report it one of these days. Our next topic today is graphene, and more specifically, uh, graphene headphones. But before we get into that, uh, Summer, why don't you explain to our listeners what's graphene? Well, I was going to ask you the same okay. thing. Um, uh, I mean, the word graphene, in terms of its uses... I have notes. I have notes. Oh, you have? Okay. I have notes. Uh, I know I, some of its oh, uses, uh, I mean, why it's good, but I can't... But I'm not so sure on why it's being considered a super material, which I'm sure you know a bit more about. Well, I'm going to start with what it is. Uh, so graphene is a material that was was known to exist, but only really isolated uh, about eight years ago, in which two guys, they won the, uh, the Nobel Prize for discovering you know, graphene. I think I'm going to name check them because I think you know it's appropriate. Andrew Guy Mohaim and Konstantin Novoselov. And, and basically, they won the Nobel Prize in 2010. And what graphene is, uh, is a carbon compound. It's named, you know, it sounds like graphite. And it is a byproduct, not a byproduct, it is present in graphite. So graphite, which is the lead in your pencil, is just a series of carbon layers stacked on top of each other. And when okay. you're writing on your piece of paper, these layers shear off the top of the, of the lead and stay on the paper. So what makes graphene different? Well, graphene is just a single one of these layers. And these layers are uh, basically 2D carbon structures. They're hexagonal. So the, the, the atoms form hexagonal uh, structures. And they're, they're 2D. So they, uh, it's just you know a single atom thick. Which before 2004 when these two guys, they, they, they made it, they, they, they took some bits of graphite and made graphene, people didn't think that it was possible to have 2D uh, just a single atom thick because you know they're going to collapse or they're going to roll up into tubes but they're actually, it's actually quite stable in two dimensions which is quite unusual and that's what is yeah, I mean, is quite uh, a good feature about what we're going to talk about that they're strong in that configuration yeah and, and so uh, the fact that it's one atom thick it, it is incredibly light so mm. one square meter of it uh, is about uh, 0 0.7 milligrams in terms of weight which yes. is one square meter is quite a bit of material in terms of surface because it's one atom thick, then you know it doesn't weigh much at all. 
and basically the the way that these guys discovered it was using uh, tape, like uh, scotch tape. They basically took a, a the process is a bit more complex than that, but they basically they used bits of tape to take off layers upon layers of of graphene of graphite. And so, in fact, when they won the Nobel Prize, they sent uh, a block of graphite and a roll of scotch tape to the Nobel Prize Museum because <laughs> that's how they got the Nobel Prize, right? Uh, which which I thought was pretty cool. And some people have, have uh, sort of decided to call it uh, monolayer graphite, so it's a single layer of graphite. And now there are new ways to do it, like you can make uh, you can make it from uh, silicon carbide, which is a compound of silicon and carbon. And if you put it at high pr- high temperature and low pressure, you can reduce it to graphene. And there are, and because of this, the fact that it's uh, all of our materials are not single layers of atoms, this exhibit this material exhibits quite interesting characteristics compared to your standard materials. Even though there's actually, in the last few years since graphene was uh, discovered, there's actually been quite a few um, other single-layer materials discovered, but no one really cares about them right now. Maybe in the future we will. Uh, everything is towards graphene. So, now tell me a bit, bit about the the applications of graphene, because that, that, that's the molecular structure. It's a single layer of graphite, but why? what, what are its properties and what, 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 what we can use it for? Well, um, something which I just came across um, quite recently was was that it's being used in uh, in headphones. Um, well, there's a single prototype of headphones, right? Yeah, um, I can't remember what university it was, but um, I mean somewhere in California, I think. Uh, was I it know. not uh, Berkeley? I think could be Berkeley. Yeah. Anyway, um, researchers at Berkeley they've um, they've managed to uh, uh, to make um, headphones out to these. Um, which have a uh, performance comparable to sort of high-end Sennheiser headphones yeah, without any our yeah. tuning, um, which is quite uh, remarkable our considering that, um, that that your high-end headphones, they... Um, 100 years of research. Yeah. And but let's let's take a step back and let's, let's describe what a headphone, how a headphone works and then, you know, why graphene is so good at it. So... Uh, headphones use uh, transducers to transform an electrical input, which is your in this case your sound wave in the form of electricity, uh, into uh, sound. Yeah. And they do this by uh, usually by having a diaphragm, which is a, a small, uh, thin, uh, usually circular uh, piece of uh, material. Which you know now they make it out of polymers. It used to be it used to be metal, but now they make it out of many different materials. And as uh, this diagram gets excited by this current, which is a bit more complex. We get into it. Uh, this it, diaphragm makes sound waves. So the usual one is the magnetic one, in which you have a a magnet creating a static magnetic field where the where the headphone is, and then you have a piece of this uh, diaphragm material with some wire on it, and as the wire gets electricity across it uh, because of you know the signal of the sound of the sound signal, electricity signal. Uh, this creates a force in uh, because of the magnetic field yeah. there, it's electromagnetic force, which makes it vibrate at, at the frequency inferior the frequency at which of the electricity which is coming into it. But that's where they're limited at the moment, right? Yeah, because uh, they the, have a weight on them. Well, yeah. b- because they're not, you know, the w- because they've made them material, they they have a weight to them. Exactly, they have different frequency responses at different frequencies. So they need to be dampened um, at different frequencies. Yeah, to have... To the idea is to have exactly the same response at every single frequency. So if I am giving you a 15,000 hertz signal and a 1,000 hertz signal, the the intensity of the sound you get in your ear is the same for both. Which is why you would hear <coughs> certain headphones are more sort of um, bassy and some would sound more, more tinny. tinny because yeah. because they, they, they have the way it's built, it favours those kinds yeah, of frequencies. So, the frequency. so their frequency response isn't flat, but it's more like curved to... Yeah. So ideally, if, if, if you had, if you had a, a frequency response curve, which is uh, your, your response compared to frequency, so on the x-axis you have frequency from 0 to about 20,000 because that's, that's the range of human hearing and on the on the vertical axis you have intensity of you know of the res- is it's it it's not intensity uh, <coughs> no sorry i was just um the range of uh, human hearing is it from uh 20 hertz to yeah. our, to our 20 kilohertz right yeah, yeah about that well 20 hertz is already pretty low okay. and obviously 0 hertz is not sound uh yeah. and 20,000 hertz is quite high 
I think you and I are about at the limit. Like in a few years' time, we won't be able to live to here. Yeah, because as you get older, yeah, you lose cones yeah. and you're, yeah. Anyway, uh, so high-end headphones they have different drivers for di- diaphragm at different frequencies. Yeah, so that the different ranges have their own um, have a their own transducer. Yeah, basically. they've got a flatter response over the over like a smaller range because it's it's very difficult to design a piece of equipment which has the same frequency response over that big of a range of frequencies 20 hertz to 20 kilohertz but for but a, for a smaller like if you design something for high frequencies or for middle frequencies or for low frequencies it's going to be much better but with these high-end headphones you also get a very high-end price uh, yeah they're very expensive yeah uh, you, you know a cheap high-end headphones is at least you know six seven hundred pounds and uh, an expensive high-end headphone, well, probably a few thousands, yeah, even tens of thousands, yeah. Like if you're a real audiophile, even though you probably wouldn't be able to hear the difference, but people like to spend audiophiles, um, they can surprisingly hear uh, uh, things which 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 the human ear can't it's really not, yeah. hear. So, yeah. Well, let's, let's not get into that. But uh, <laughs> so let's go back to graphene. Uh, what do you, the the um, University of Berkeley, they, they did was they, they made uh, instead of having an electrical coil on the onto the diaphragm, the diaphragm is made of graphene, which is an electrical conductor. So you don't need to have an electrical wire on top of this. And uh, so all they did was you know they put uh, a a couple of layers of, gra- of gra- graphene. I think it wasn't, wasn't even a single one. And then you know into the magnetic field, and then they excited this graphene uh, diaphragm. And the response they got uh, across frequencies is similar to a high-end headphone, which is you know, a very complex piece of kit. And this wasn't even optimized, this uh, graphene uh, um, headphone. So in theory, in the future, if you could have optimized graphene headphones, you could, we could be getting close to having a completely flat response on every single frequency, which is, which is pretty cool. How far do you think this would be? Graphene is still kind of expensive. Uh, I think in South Korea they they make uh, sheets. I think they're thirty centimeters square or something similar. So still, you know, not too big. Uh, as soon as graphene gets cheap, I'm sure that we'll see these coming into well, play. Well, we're still quite quite a long way to seeing double uh, graphene becoming widely used. I mean, uh, from what I've read, um, most of the research that is being done on a on a graphene it's where a silicon was say like 50 years ago well so because another <coughs> application of uh, graphene is to make uh, transistors yeah. to make circuit boards uh, but as you're saying we've spent so much time searching silicon uh, as, a, as a material to make uh, you know circuit boards that uh, it would going to take some time before uh, graphene gets yeah, the same so it's like so far behind I um I mean, it's very unlikely that, say, Intel will be using our graphene <coughs> and its chips in in the next our uh, twenty years, even. Yeah, it's probably yeah. probably unlikely, uh, but I'm sure there will be startups who will compete on on this front. Uh, other few uh, uh, applications of graphene uh, per weight is probably it is the strongest, toughest material we have has the highest tensile strength which is weight. why no. which is why it was so good being used as a diaphragm because um uh uh because uh uh the dampening material um is just air yeah so it doesn't need to be our dampened at different frequencies it's very low weight which means as there's no dampening um it's more energy efficient which, which uses less power yeah so 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 that can also have effects on say on say mobile equipment, um, uh, so so the power consumption will be longer. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, sure. Uh, but you know, uh, there was a. I think the, the speech they made when they won the Nobel Prize, they said that um, if you had a, you know, a one meter square graphene uh, sheet, you could make a hammock for a cat that weighs four kilos. And the hammock itself, made of graphene, would weigh about as much as one whisker <laughs> of the cat. But of course, you know, in in very high stress applications, graphene is you know not there yet. Because how big are these current um, graphene sheets? Yeah, it's like they're not very big. I think they're about thirty centimeters. But that's the biggest I've 
I'm sure maybe they're always improving, so I'm sure they're making them more, but they're discovering newer and newer ways to make it. Because now that they know that this material exists uh, in its 2D state, uh, there, you know, there's obviously much more research, because before it was just, uh, it was, people didn't think that it was possible to make it. So they're finding mm. lots, lots, lots of different ways. And other, other applications of uh, graphene, uh, which I have a list here, is a gas detection. Okay. Uh, because apparently the... Because uh, it, I'm not entirely sure. What, but it, because they permeable, I'm, I'm guessing then. I'm not sure. I can't remember. Well, I'm going to have to look into it. Uh, uh, solar cells. Solar cells, yeah. yeah. Ultra capacitors. So you have two sheets of, uh, of, of graphene instead of your typical metal plates in a yeah. capacitor. Uh, and then bio devices and rapid DNA sequencing because apparently you can, you can cut DNA quite well with graphene because it's so thin it's so thin yeah, yeah. I, I'm wondering like, imagine if, if they made like um, graphene sheets like imagine the paper cuts you would get from, from those sheets gosh yeah They're just one atom thick sheets of stuff is probably quite sharp I would imagine <laughs> imagine the sort of weapons you can use like just, yeah, just graphene mm. knives, probably probably too, machete too floppy though. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, but you, you can use it to make uh, nanotubes from graphene, etc. So it's it's quite an interesting material, uh, which we will be obviously see more of, hopefully in the future. Hopefully, yeah. Well, there's there's always, there's always something new in science that everyone everyone gets really excited about, and then the actual costs of uh, of making it they never go down. Well, about uh, five to ten years ago, you would hear nonstop about. Uh, our carbon, our nanotubes, and um, yeah, and and now the news is kind of uh, uh, like uh, slowed down as um, as the research. Because apparently they're quite toxic so, as well, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, and it's and they're also pretty hard to make uh, in them I mean, in decent sizes. So. If they can figure out a way to make graphene cost efficient, we'll see lots of, lots of it. If they can't, then it's just going to go away. As, Maybe we'll have very specific applications, like on a space shuttle. Maybe you know, something which you make a graphene because you have the money to do it. Well, maybe not anymore, but in, in in other space projects or in other very specific industries. Or if you've got a few thousand pounds to spend on a very high-end in-air monitor, maybe. Yeah, exactly. So you know, it, it might it might be that uh, even though graphene uh, headphones are in theory simpler, uh, they might still be more expensive to make just because graphene is more expensive. Well, we don't know. We'll we'll see. We'll see in the future. Next up, uh, still talking about science, uh, let's talk about the Mariana Trench. What, what's the Mariana Trench? Is it like a World War One trench or what is it, Simon? Yeah, yeah, the Mariana Trench, I think it's the deepest known point on the Earth. And it's well, on, on the crust, yeah. On, on the crust, yeah. Um, and it's somewhere in the, in the West, at, West Atlantic? No, Pacific. West Pacific. It's Northwest Pacific. Northwest Pacific, sorry, yeah. And it, it, it so uh, it'll be just off um, off of uh, Japan, right? Yeah, somewhere on there. Yeah. And uh, it has a depth of eleven kilometers. Eleven kilometers. Yeah, under sea level, which is the deepest point in the crust that we can get to without drilling. I mean, um, just out of interest, how far down does does a uh, light penetrate? Probably not that much. It it it, it doesn't go that far. I know. No, no, um, I remember. I'm sure some of it will, but most of it will be. No, no, no. Ninety-nine point nine 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 percent, right? Uh, I think I all of it. I think there's hardly any light um, because um, it's all absorbed by the water. I think um, e like even if you go down like half half a kilometer, you get literally no light. So, uh, so well, I but think literally no light, no light is not exactly no light. I mean, you might get some. You just won't be able to hear it to hear it to to see it. See it, yeah. Hearing light will be quite a skill, but. Uh, so yeah, the Mariana Trench. It's a 11 kilometer trench in the Pacific, and why are we talking about it? Is it's because they, some scientists have sent a bunch of robots down the Mariana Trench to check for life, and they had to build uh, very um, complex, very specific robots because the pressure down there, I, I, you know, it's 11 kilometers, so I have it right here. But yeah, it's, it's it, it goes up. It bars. goes up by an atmosphere every 100 meters. So 11 kilometers, it is 1,100 atmospheres, which means <laughs> that the, the pressure under there is 1,100 times, 1, times the pressure you're, you're currently having on you, your body right now. So if you went down there, you'd be crushed in an instant. You'd be thinner than a coin. <laughs> yeah, well, no, you just, it just wouldn't be anything yeah. left. You just, um, uh, just uh, another thing to add, the trench is also 
um, was it 2,500 uh, kilometers long um, if you wanted to know that's a, just to put that out there yeah, <laughs> well the deepest point is, 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 is a couple of spots is 11 kilometers and what they had to do is they had to build these robots which had uh, oxygen sensors because that's how you measure if there is life uh, down there um, that worked when the robot was down there because if you take a sample of the soil and then you go up 11 kilometers all of the life which you know, which was there before, probably die because it's you know it's evolved to live at crazy amounts of pressure, and if you take it to atmospheric pressure, uh, it's going to probably dissolve. So they had to uh, make these uh, particular sensors, and they found that there is life. It, it, you know, surprisingly so, yeah. Well, surprisingly, yes. I mean, you get uh, bacteria in like really hot pools of water, right? You know, uh, you get bacteria everywhere. Yeah. Well, I know it's it's um, a cliche to say this, but um, we know more about the moon than we do about the depths of the ocean. So, well, because uh, because at the end of the day, there, there isn't that much on the moon anyway. The okay, <laughs> but yeah, the, the, the we've explored more. Yeah, so. the Mariana Trench is one of the last you know last few spots that we don't really know much about, and this is it's like pretty forward. hard for like humans to go down there. So, yeah, uh, yeah. Quite difficult. And if you do it, go down, anything. you there can't really see there anything. Is, is there anything big that lives down there? We're talking about very, very small unicellular things. I, even like you know, fishes which live at depth don't live at eleven kilometers. There are some things that live quite deep in, I mean, the ocean, but um, like tube worms and stuff. Yeah, right? and there's some, and there's some really weird-looking fish which, yeah, which have like especially a- adapted um, features. After living there, high pressure. because there's no yeah, yeah, I mean that there's no light as well down there. So. Yeah, there's, yeah. Mm. It's, there's no plant life because there's no light going there. You can't yeah. grow things. The, yeah, so there's no but, photosynthesis. Yeah, the, I mean the the places where you have quite deep and you have life is where you have uh, these uh, volcanic vents. You have sulfuric, uh, you know, gases coming out of these really really hot vents, and you get life around them because you have energy for life. But otherwise, it's quite difficult. And what they um, uh, supposing that there's life down there because there's more life at 11 kilometers than at five or six kilometers in the Mariana Trench, and um, they believe that it's because it, all of the all, everything that dies goes to the bottom, so it goes to the deepest point, which is 11 kilometers. So there's a concentration of uh, of you know biological material which can help life. Uh, I think someone just got a coffee hit. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So. Um, that's why it's interesting, the Mariana Trench. Uh, do you want to say anything else about the Mariana Trench, or I think that covers it. Right? Um, it's just interesting from. Let's talk a bit more about uh, the oceans. We can do that. From a geology perspective, um, like like how you get such such deep um, deep formations occurring. Well, deep yeah. is 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 it's still a bit of a it's quite uh, yeah relative, because you know eleven kilometers. I mean the crust is. Much oh, thicker yeah. than that. So I would and, compare that to the crust. And the, the thickness of the of the earth is much much thicker than that. But that region is a highly volcanic area. So um, uh, yeah, it, 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 there's two there's two um, tectonic plates which are moving. Uh, which is different yeah, directions. Yes. Yeah, so it's oh, near the boundary of of these two plates. And uh, I was reading, you know, um, to our generation, right? We've when we we were taught geology at school level, right, in physics or whatever, or in geography. You talk about tectonic plates. It's just it's a given. Tectonic plates are a thing. Yeah. But tectonic plates theory has been around for what twenty five years, thirty years. Is that it? It's quite recent. Okay. Like before it wasn't really uh, the idea wasn't there. It was, it was different. Geology, geology, even though it, it you know it covers the most of like, in terms of age, you know. So so how long have we known about uh, continental drift and? Um, I think I think that was the sixties. Sixties. Yeah. Okay. So they knew about it, but they didn't have a theory. Yeah, they knew the continents moved, but the plates themselves, I think, they were later. There's a there's a really interesting chapter in um, Bill Bryson's A Short History of Nearly Everything, which talks about okay. the discovery Cause, of... Because, like, in Iceland, you can actually physically um, see it happening, um, where you've got uh, the uh, the mid- Mid-Atlantic Ridge, which, which are two plates which are going apart. Yeah. And... Um, and and they're constantly uh, measuring the distance on either side of this ridge with a laser, and and like it's over moving. the last few years, yeah, it, it has it has moved. But uh, the thing is that bit. you might be even to 
to see it, but if you don't have the idea of the concept behind it, you're never gonna understand it, right? It's just Earth moving. You don't. Yeah. It's not like you can zoom out and look at the Earth from you know from space and just say, oh look, that's moving that way and that way. It's you know we have to measure things on the ground usually, and especially now you have satellites, so maybe it's a bit easier. But you know, hundred years ago, obviously you, you did not. And I'm pretty sure that when tectonic plates uh, were proposed, that you know the geolo the geology world just laughed at it. It's like it's ridiculous. And now, of course, it's, it's accepted. That's, I mean, I was taught this, like, like at such oh, a detail. I'm at university as well. That, um, uh, that, that I thought that this would have been a theory which has been around for ages, but it's quite surprising. Maybe it's around longer than twenty, thirty, but definitely twentieth century, not before that. It's as I was saying, geology covers a, a huge span, like the longest span. Oh, of course, uh, yeah. Or, you know, millions, billions of years. But it's actually quite a recent science. I mean, thermodynamics is older than geology. Okay. So yeah, so that's that was the Marianne. I lost my. I think we should talk there. about this a bit more in a future episode. Then. Uh, yeah, sure. We can talk about it more now if you have more things to say. Um, not off, not off the top of my head, but um, I'll, so I'll think. We'll of things. archive this and uh, get back to it. Yeah. Future episode. Yeah, I'm, I'm checking right now. Uh, continental drift was um, proposed in the beginning of the 20th century, and uh, plate tectonics have been around since the 60s. Okay, so a bit more than 20, 30. But it's still yeah. very recent. It's still quite recent. Case. Yeah. Right. Next up, let's talk batteries. Let's talk energy, but batteries are part of energy because they store it. So, someone tell me about batteries. Well, there are a few different types of uh, old batteries out there, aren't there? Um, uh, mostly lithium ion. Is, and yeah, they always use the differences between uh, the uh, the chemical potential between two substances, and um, and and they use this to uh, generate the uh, power you need for for the current flow yeah. between these two, and um, yeah. But the reason we're talking about batteries today is because we there's an article uh, I can't remember I think it was on Wired actually one other thing uh, batteries they're quite old aren't they they've been around for a few hundred years I think the first one was uh, made by Alessandro Volta in yeah. the 19th century yeah a couple hundred years there's a zinc and copper uh, you know standard with acid inside yeah they've been around quite a long time but they're still quite inefficient but we're going to well, we're going to get the technology hasn't moved on much it's moved a bit of uh, course but um, you have rechargeable batteries which is nice um so the the, the article on Wired was uh, was saying that you know if we are going to have to move into uh, only alternative in quotes energy uh, in the future, we need to find ways to store the energy because yes. we talked about last week with fossil fuels and things you can burn and you, you can choose the rate of burning so you can produce exactly the amount you need of, of electricity. With alternative energy, that's not true because wind is a bit. You need to store it. So you need to store the energy. And currently, batteries just aren't good enough. Well, there are a few ways that the article proposes. I have them here. Let me just throw them there. Uh, yeah, you have pumped hydroelectric storage, compressed air energy storage, and batteries. I like so this pumped hydroelectric storage. Um, uh, yes. Yeah, so there are three different ways to store energy, and the batteries they store it in form of chemical energy. Uh, and according to the article, they're pretty bad. They they. <laughs> I think nickel cadmium. What they what they were doing is that they were um, comparing how much energy it takes you to make the battery, compared to how much energy you get out of it, and you know how many charges you can use. And with nickel cadmium batteries, the amount of energy you get out of it is twice the amount of energy. Nickel cadmium. That's just like the battery you would get in, say, uh, like a camera or or a laptop, right? I think so. I think lithium ion is the newest ones, right? Yeah, they're the other newest ones, which are, which you get. I mean, most phones and was iPods and stuff nowadays. But uh, yeah. so nickel cadmium can store about twice the energy it takes to make them in terms of you know how many times you can recharge them before they break down. And lithium ion, I think, it's about ten. Yeah, I, I think was it NiCad batteries? They were the ones um, uh, to get their best um, life life out of them you should use them 
until they're was it fully out oh, decharged and then recharge them right and um i can't remember that. and then uh the lithium iron ones you should always keep oh, our, yeah our topped up well to, the to the, the lithium iron on. ones you're not supposed to discharge them completely yeah but the fact is that your phone knows that so when your phone says zero percent it's not zero percent on the no. battery so yeah there's obviously software that preserves the battery life uh, so batteries are no no they're not good for storing energy in terms of the amount of energy you need for you know for you so what are the alternatives so there's two of them there's compressed air energy storage uh, which is you are basically you are compressing air with a pump and use uh, the potential of that I'm the potential of yeah. pressure to you know to in turbine yeah and you have the other one, the other one which is the one which is uh, looks like it's the most promising hydroelectric which, which is pumped hydroelectric storage which is actually quite a simple so you use concept. Uh, the potential energy yeah you just uh, push water up yep so you are you know you're pushing a very large volume of water I would imagine so when you uh, to a higher altitude so to a water tower or water tank up higher than you are and that energy you know we just something into potential energy so when you release the valve and the water flows down then you the can energy can be used to you know, in a pump like in a hydroelectric dam kind of thing you will be able to use the energy but you still won't recover all the energy no you won't um, wh when it's coming down that you have used to I will pump it up so no you won't but it's uh, batteries are worse because this process you know it doesn't use uh, chemicals so it's less obviously less uh, uh, it's more environmentally friendly sure and you can use it many more times batteries have a finite life cycle you need somewhere large to do this as a holder well yeah of course yeah. Well, but you know if you have a hydroelectric dam then you, you can build those you make artificial lakes I'm sure figure out a way to do it sure uh, so yeah so we need to figure out a way because the just the way electricity is produced right now there is no storage of it you know you listening to us talking on this podcast the energy you're using has been produced a couple of seconds ago, or well, even less. Well, that. unless you're listening to it on your iPod. Well, or yeah, okay, fine. Uh, <laughs> that's true. <laughs> yes, you're right. I'm sorry. If you're watching television and it's not a portable television, <laughs> then the energy you're using is uh, has been just generated. Mains electricity. Yeah. yeah, mains electricity basically. So, which brings into us uh, the same topic, which is uh, uh, wind farms. There's been a very interesting study done in Australia. Uh, you know, you know, people complain, right? P people like to complain. Everyone likes to complain. Everyone likes to complain. Right? The whole yeah. internet complains. The internet complains. Every time we put something up, all all we get is people complaining. Because that's it's easier to complain. It, there was actually a study which showed that it's much easier to rally people around a complaining cause, like you, you know, being anti something, than being pro something. It's just psychologically, it's much easier. It's much easier to make people upset about something than to be to make them excited about something. But anyway, this study was uh, saying that. Uh, Wind farm sickness, which I actually didn't know was a thing. <laughs> it was this is news to me. Is it a thing? Well, it, people complain that when where they're living next to wind farms, they get uh, they get ill, they can't sleep, they get headaches. What is this because of the whirring sound or the it's like the the air pressure or something? It's very very pseudo scientific reasons that's for sure. And what they found is that the people who complained about wind farm sickness were the ones which were told about it. So in places where there was no pressure group against these wind farms, people did not complain about wind farm sickness. Well, in places where pressure groups were complaining, you know, telling people like, oh, you should be aware of uh, wind farm sickness, people were getting wind farm sickness. So it's, it's completely psychological. Why would people complain about wind farms in the first place I don't know maybe just groups sponsored by oil barons I, I don't know uh, people like do people like to complain uh, about things they don't understand is there anything similar any other kind of um, like our condition well this is this is uh, anything we, you notice? know you know the placebo effect right? yeah yeah so the placebo effect is when I telling you someone take this pill which is actually made of sugar but you don't know that and you'll feel better and you will feel better because that's the placebo effect and it's been you scientifically it, proven. It it exists. Yeah. Like whenever you're proving, you're trying to prove that uh, a new treatment works, you're always comparing it to placebo, because placebo will have a certain effectiveness, and if your new remedy has the same effectiveness as placebo, then it just means it's not working, because placebo has no medicine inside. But this is an effect which is the opposite of placebo, which is called nocebo. 
which is the opposite. So if, if I tell you someone that you're going to feel sick, you're going to feel sick. It's the complete opposite. Uh, there's a really funny story. Uh, there was a while ago in Germany, the telecom, the, the Deutsche Telekom, they were building this uh, huge um, uh, broadcast tower, right? Because they you need know, to improve the 4G network or whatever it was. And they, they built it, they set it up, and then people started complaining. Like, oh, we're getting ill, we can't sleep. And they just complained a bunch to the, the Deutsche Telekom. And then Deutsche Telekom sent them a letter saying, you know, like, if you're feeling bad now, uh, what will happen when we actually turn it on? <laughs> so the real tower was actually not turned on, it was just there. And people felt sick because they expected it to feel sick. So that's the nocebo effect. Which also brings us to the next topic, which is uh, global warming, which is an article this week in which uh, uh, some, some scientists have studied that uh, the northern regions of the of the world, they're getting more like the southern regions. So they're becoming more warmer. green. Becoming more green. So they can analyze the amount so of greenness. So there's more fauna that is outgrowing on, on the surface. Yeah, because it's becoming less seasonal. The winters are getting warmer, but the summers are not getting as warmer, you know, they're not in increasing as much in temperature, and so you get less drift between, you know, seasonal drift between winter and summer. Yeah, and from a, and from a satellite images, the ice caps have been uh, shrinking uh, quite a bit. They do normally out seasonally, over the summer they uh, they melt uh, quite a bit. And then they refreeze, Then yeah. they refreeze, but they're not coming back to the same size that they were, say, what the previous year. And um, and so that's increasing uh, the green belt, say that's around uh, the polar caps. Yeah, the the the, the, the earth is getting less uh, less white, more green at the top, uh, because uh, you no, know, obviously if you have less seasonal drift, you ha it's better for conditions for uh, for growing sure. plants for life to exist. Uh, and um, so what are the repercussions of this? Well, well, before we get into that, also there was something called. Um, I can't remember the call. Basically, what happens is that the ice melts, which releases uh, gases like CO2. That are stored with they're stored in the ice. In the ice, yeah. Uh, in the atmosphere, which makes the atmosphere around the ice hotter, which means that more ice melts, creating more of these gases. So it's it's looking bad. It's not looking good. Uh, but yeah, global warming. Uh, we believe in it. We don't believe in it. We we know of it. It's not something you believe in, right? Climate change. Climate yeah. Change. Well, climate change, of course, because climate always changes. Okay, yeah. Global warming, like man-made global warming, is—I wouldn't say it's a hundred percent certainty because nothing is, but it's getting there. It looks more and more like we are responsible for death taxes, global warming. Yeah, those are the new things that are yeah. certain in life. Uh, well, climate change definitely uh, certain. Otherwise, you wouldn't have the, the ice age if climate didn't change. Well, the covering of ice is also important. Um, it affects what's called the what what's called the albedo um, on um, out from the earth, which which is um, which is how the, much of the sun rays yeah um, uh, um, uh, sent back, back into in into space from Earth and um, and so like when you have less less was it white our covering uh, the planet the Earth absorbs more of the sun's um, sun's rays and, and and so it heats up e even more so, so basically shrinking ice is bad it's bad the, the fact is that yes you know climate has always changed right but humans have evolved to live in a climate which works the way it does now so a sudden change in climate would not benefit humans no <laughs> like we would not be able to survive in such a situation because we just, you know, well, I'm sure some of us would, but most of us, you know, the evolution, natural selection will take effect. And, you know, maybe, you know, when there is a DNA in, in thousands or tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years or millions of years, when climate will completely changed, you will have a new species of humans which will have adapted to live in such a harsh environment or a different environment. So that's global so warming. Should we, do you, want, do you want to say anything else about global warming or should we move on? Um, well, I could add a lot more, I suppose, but um, I don't think we have enough time uh, for this show. But I would really like to hear from others, um, some of our listeners, what they think. And um, so, so if you can, just uh, well, drop us a message, and um, and and I would join in the conversation. 
Yeah, we'll, we'll, we'll definitely have another episode where we delve into uh, global warming a bit more. But now let's, let's move on. All right, we're almost out of time. And uh, let's go to our astronomy corner because that seems that's to be a subject that we always talk about. Our, yeah, that's our favorite subject, I, space. I did not think that it was my favorite subject, but we can't stop talking about it on the on the podcast. So well, there is a lot of that stuff out there. So well, yeah, yeah, <laughs> there's quite a lot of uh, stuff. Yes, definitely. But what we'll talk about this week is there's a couple of uh, Mars missions being planned, which have been in the news. Uh, you want to talk about them, Salman? Or um, well, um, well, one's just sending people um, on a flyby, and um, I think one actually wants someone to set foot on the moon. Is that right? Uh, on 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 Mars, you mean? On Sorry, the moon. on Mars. Yeah, not on the moon. Uh, yeah, so there's one. I think by we've already done that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> one by uh, the Dennis Tito, who's a, who's a Dennis Tito, who's a Russian multi-billionaire. Who is planning to send a couple to uh, to Mars? And uh, so, not to Mars, to fl- on a flyby. So it's a 501 day long mission. And um, basically, there are a couple of married people uh, that they will be on this spaceship who are flying around Mars because getting off Mars is quite difficult. Uh, you know, if the moon is tiny, has a very low gravi- well, very low, has a lower gravitational. F- uh, well, Mars is like a similar size to Earth. Isn't it's a bit it? smaller, but so the gravitational pull will be very similar to mm, Earth. But you need to carry a lot of fuel up there with you. And, well, you need to carry, a, and that will make it very difficult to actually get rocket. off Earth. Well, you Just need to carry a, a very, very large rocket about the same size that you would use to get off Earth. Yeah, which would be difficult to do that. So that's why they're only flying by uh, because once you get set foot on Mars, there's probably no way to get you off well, at the moment, during your lifetime. Well, at the moment, uh, the rockets normally uh, would detach um, from whatever uh, what shuttle you're sending up there. And um, yeah, the the idea is is to have reusable uh, rockets, uh, different ways of propulsion, uh, so that you can actually get off planet. But the other mission, which is called the Mars One mission, which is uh, funded by well, funded he's is an Dutch entrepreneur trying to do this, and they want to send one guy to set foot on Mars, and never coming back. Which is, I wouldn't do it honestly. I mean, yes, you go down into history as the first person to ever set, probably you know, the first intelligent being, whatever that means, to set foot on Mars. What's but I still would. I it's just, I. What do you do there? I don't know. You'd be the only person up there. You can't breathe without any apparatus and. Uh, like like I, I get lonely when I spend one day working on my own. I mean, imagine spending the rest of your life on Mars. I really don't know. Um, it's a, uh, it's a hard one. Who would uh, volunteer for that? I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. And uh, it, this this mission will cost about six billion dollars. Hey, hey, maybe he's he's hoping that once he sets uh, the president, more people will come, and then sooner or later they'll find it's, a way to get to you off of Mars. A couple of years, though, probably at least, <laughs> if it happens. Uh, and. Um, Sorry, ever. Uh, what do I want to say? I forgot. <sighs> Which one was the one that they wanted to sell TV rights to? That's, that's it. That's what I wanted to say. It cost $6 billion to do. And the way they're going to raise the money is by selling TV rights. So, reality TV. Like, look at this guy. He's on Mars and he's very bored. So, it's I just c- like watching Big Brother? Yes. No. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm sure it'll be more entertaining even though the guy's not doing anything. I'm sure. I'm sure he'll do a bunch of experiments. He'll have stuff to do. Well, that's he'll what it's all about, isn't it? He'll have to build, I guess, or they have to send with him somewhere he can live. Laboratory that, you, you equipment. You could spend your life inside a spacesuit. That would be quite difficult. Make a hammock. Yeah, just a hammock and just use a spacesuit for everything. Uh, which actually it just reminded me of. Uh, there's been some really bad Mars movies. In the he last can take a dog up there, can't he? Huh? A dog. Can, yeah. Yeah, Mars Keep dog with company. that. But have Better you seen, call him have you seen uh, the Mars Rover? <laughs> <laughs> have you seen that? There's a movie in the 90s, though, it wasn't, which was uh, uh, like these guys land on Mars and they find that lots of bacteria have produced an atmosphere, and then there's like the security robot tries to kill them. Uh, it's a terrible movie. So I'm hoping this reality TV will be better than that movie. I don't think I have seen this movie. No. Okay, then you're not missing it. I think it was Ghost of Mars. Was a, was a different one? No, I don't recall anything like that. 
It's really bad. Don't watch it. Uh, it shouldn't be more fun to watch a single guy doing experiments. Well, we'll definitely learn more. Well, definitely, yeah, definitely. All right. So, um, do you want to say anything else about Mars, or should we shelve uh, Astronomy Corner for now until That's next it. week? Yeah. All right. Hey, by the way, um, this week I came across this uh, great website called uh, called uh, Biodigital Human. And what is uh, it? Well, well, um, it's got a complete anatomy of a person, and um, you can sort of see the different layers, and you can take off layers, and you can have different systems in there. So you it's can like a three D model, right? Um, yeah, and um, so so you can uh, like you can select say uh, uh, the cardiovascular system or just all or, or, or just the muscles or just the bones and and if you want to see something um, uh, in a specific you can just uh, remove all the layers which are on top of it so it's like so I spent quite a bit of time on there which was vivisectioning a human yeah just like trying to figure out what muscles were were aching in my body so <laughs> We're just looking at oh, it's this one. I do you remember the names of the muscle? Uh, yeah. One was the tensor fascia latae and um, biceps femoris, which is on my leg. Yeah, and uh, femur. Uh, okay, so so I guess it does work as an educational tool because you remember them. Yeah. So yeah, so uh, listeners should check it out. It's pretty cool if you're interested in anatomy, and you should because it's you own one of those. <laughs> you own a body. Uh, you should check it out and uh, let us know if you like it. Alright, so I think this will be it for this week's podcast. And as usual, you should check out our website, uh, pycube.co.uk. Uh, someone, you wrote something this week on it, right? You wrote a blog post. Yeah, about something that we've talked about already, uh, the Radio Jove project. Which is the uh, radio telescope to, uh, to, you know, uh, to listen, listen to, to Jupiter, right? Yeah. So... Uh, you wrote a bit of a more detailed post on how you actually made it, and if you, you can see some listen, pictures, you should of go it. have a look at pycube.co.uk. We're still making videos. There'll be a new one uh, probably tomorrow or Friday. And if there's anything that you wanna see from us or um, you want us to talk yeah, about, let actually, us know. We actually we got feedback from one of our readers. Uh, I'm just gonna read his comment now. Uh, might as well, if my page loads quickly enough. Uh, talk about something while I search for this. Solomon. Shall we talk about internet speeds in the no. UK? Or no? Okay. <laughs> Alright, so Yusuf writes uh, Books I recommend uh, Big Bang by Simon Singh. Have you read that? Yes, I have. Is it good? Um, sorry, not The Big Bang. I've read another book by him okay, so called uh, Fermat's Last Theorem. Alright, so I've heard of him. He's quite a famous uh, scientific journalist. We'll check it out. Thanks, Yusuf. And also, he writes that you should uh, read Crazy Horse and Custer. The Parallel Lives of Two American Warriors by Stephen E. Ambrose. Which, have you heard that? Nope. Sounds interesting. Uh, but, you know, so Indian it's about our, our Cusser's last stand, I, I think. Well, Crazy Horse was a famous uh, leader of the... An American the, Indian, isn't it? I think he was leader of the Iroquois. The Iroquois, the, Apache, I don't know. No, because the Iroquois weren't actually a tribe of Indians or Society of Indians. They were uh, a league of different tribes. If I'm not mistaken. Well, maybe Yusuf could um could enlighten us. us more. Why would you read this? Uh, and also, he he writes that you should read uh, <laughs> the Mutt: How to Skateboard and Not Kill Yourself by Rodney Mullen, which is not very relevant to what we're doing here, but it sounds interesting. I, I was a big Tony Hawk video game fan back in the day, so I know who that is. Rodney Mullen, yeah, he's a, he's a big skater. skater yeah. All right, so um, thanks a lot, Yusuf, and we'll have a look at these books and let you know. And if any Anyone, anyone else has any suggestions or things we should talk about, comments or anything, just let us know. Uh, just find us on Facebook or Twitter or on our website where you'll find links to Twitter and Facebook. YouTube. Again, it's so P-I-E-C-U-B-E-D dot C-O dot U-K. And uh, anything else you want to say, Salman, before I wrap this up? I think that's good. It's good, okay. Ciao for now. Ciao. Uh, thanks everyone for listening and we'll hopefully you will listen to us next week as well and see you somewhere next week bye